Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the annoying voice of podcasting, and you're listening to the non-annoying Three Guys in a Flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. In telling the story of my father's life, it's impossible to separate fact from fiction, the man from the myth. The best I can do is to tell it the way he told me. It doesn't always make sense, and most of it never happened. But that's what kind of story this is. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Big Fish. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from the little slice of pie town named Spectre. Hey, where the fuck are my shoes? Where's my shoes? Do you have your shoes, Professor? No, they're out hanging on the line. Well, then how the... Oh, for fuck's sakes. Anyways, my name is Don, and to my right, we have the comic book guy, John. Greetings, gentlemen. And to my left, we have the Professor, Ken. Hello there. How are you guys doing tonight? Excellent. Good. Sir? I'm doing rather well. Awesome. Awesome. Tonight, we are talking about Big Fish. Big Fish comes to us from the Bronco Helmet. It was submitted to us by one of our listeners, Nolan. So, Nolan, if you're listening, thanks for throwing it in there, buddy. We are happy to talk about it, and this one is for you. Had you seen this before, Professor? Yes, sir. How many times? Uh, at least once, maybe twice. Yeah. Uh, comic book guy? I had actually seen it once before, and I remember being completely bored by it. Yeah. Uh, but the interesting thing is, and I was talking with the professor about this the other night, that I don't know, maybe it's because I saw it when it first came out and I didn't have a lot of the life experiences that share with this movie. You know, with the idea of parents getting older, getting married, having children, you know, losing a parent, things like that. You start to form a bond with what's going on in this movie and it starts to have more of an impact and more of a connection. And so my, my latest viewing of it, I saw it completely different in a new light. That's awesome. That's awesome. Power of film, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had seen this before. Uh, I remember, I think I saw it on Blu-ray. and I, I never saw it in the theater. Um, I haven't always been the biggest Tim Burton fan. So, you know, when it came out, I was probably blah, 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 movies, movies, movies. But in my household, Big Fish is a, a popular movie, Keenan Annelies are real big fans, so I know I've seen it on multiple occasions. And uh, I got to say, uh, I, I liked it. I think one of the biggest impacts of this movie, at least for me, is the idea of a parent that tells stories and constantly repeats the same stories over and over again. Julie and I have had this discussion every time, like my father will retell one of his stories that we have heard. We both kind of give each other a look, but she brings up all the time how much we're going to miss those stories and miss him telling those stories when he's gone released on december 10th 2003 big fish was directed by tim burton screenplay by john august based on the book big fish a novel of mythic proportions by daniel wallace and it stars ewan mcgregor albert finney billy crudrup jessica lang helena bonham carter allison loman robert guillaume marion cotillard 
Steve Buscemi, Danny DeVito, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made on a budget of $70 million, and it looks to have brought in $123 million. Yeah, for a departure from Tim Burton's typical, you know, kind of over-the-top movies, I thought it did pretty well. Do you like Tim Burton movies at all? Well, most people would go to Batman, but I actually have a deep appreciation for Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I think one of my favorites of his is Alice in Wonderland, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I really enjoyed Alice in Wonderland mm. for some reason. Mm-hmm. You know, um, What about you? I love Pee Wee. Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, Beetlejuice, ton of fun. And, of course, Batman, boy, I couldn't get enough of that when that was in the theater. I would drag anybody who was willing to go see Batman in the theater at the time. Uh, another one, oh, Ed Wood. Ed Wood was really good. I, I really liked that one as well. Uh, another one was, um, oh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I, I still I still enjoy moments of that. And um, Sleepy Hollow, that, that has a place as well. And unofficially, Nightmare Before Christmas. Even though he doesn't technically direct it, he did a lot of influence that affected the directing of it. Sure. So I, I do enjoy him and he is uh, certainly of a specific style and uh, what else comes with him? Danny Elfman. Love Danny Elfman's musical compositions. He is, he is such a, a savvy writer. And for those listeners that may or may not know, he was the lead singer for Oingo Boingo and he also created the uh, theme song for the Simpsons. Yep, he certainly did. And he has uh, done all but... So he's done almost 20 Tim Burton projects. And the two that he did not do were um, Ed Wood. Oh, Sweeney Todd. That was the other one. Ah. Uh. But, uh, you know, he he's responsible. He's given us uh, the Men in Black sound, Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2. As a matter of fact, him and Sam Raimi had a serious falling out after Spider-Man 2. And uh, what else did he, was he responsible for? Uh, another big one. Oh, Batman. The Batman and Batman oh. Returns. Oh. Just a little movie called Batman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he, he created that iconic Batman theme. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Did you catch uh, Tim Burton, the, why this movie was significant to him? I'm going to guess it's about his father. Yeah. His father passed away around the time that he agreed to direct the movie. And then I think I read that like just a month before... The movie started filming, he lost his mother as well. So you can kind of feel that impact in this movie. Oh, this movie definitely has heart, without a doubt. So Yeah, I, I think that probably there was some catharsis in there for, for him. Oh, I'm sure. Did this movie win any awards, Professor? Danny Elfman got nominated for original score. What, uh, what movie did we just do that had Elfman's soundtrack on it? Was that Ferris Bueller? Ferris Bueller, and there was another one too. That escapes me. Oh, was it Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag? It might have been Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. I think it was. Anyways. What did you guys think of the casting? Um, I I enjoy Ewan McGregor. Uh, Albert Finney's a good actor. I enjoy Billy Crudup. I thought this movie was cast very well, actually. What, where do we know Billy from? Almost Famous. Uh, he okay. is Dr. Manhattan. Oh. Uh, yeah. Listeners, you should have seen it. The lights just went on. For, for me, he just reminded me so much of Paul Rudd. Like, Paul Rudd could have been in this movie. Uh, he just gave off a kind know. of vibe to me. Maybe it was the hair. Maybe. Um, I think Paul Rudd would have been too funny if that's... 
I don't know. I thought Billy did a really good job in this role. You know, um, what about you? What did you think of the cast? I thought it was really well done, uh, especially Ewan. I, I love him just about in everything he's in. In the bit when they're in the circus and he comes walking down and time stops, I half expected him to break out into a song. <laughs> so thank you. It was my worst nightmare, Professor. It was Moulin Rouge and The Greatest Showman mashed up. Yeah, th- th- that's that's an easy tangent to break off into. No, please. No, please. Don't, 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 don't. And how many movies do we get a naked Danny DeVito? Uh, not enough, apparently. Yeah. So. At least for John. That's right. Heck that's yeah. Right. Hey, man. Different strokes for different folks. You know, Deep Roy, uh, I was looking at his uh, movie credits, and he's only got like a dozen. He has like next to nothing. And his bio just says that he's been in a couple of movies it's like there's nothing on him but if you count how many characters he played in Willy Wonka uh he should have a huge bio he played like what 40 50 different versions of himself well guess what they didn't okay there is also a very small uh debut of an actor in this movie very small for just a few moments with her real first name yes I was looking for it. What, what is her real first name? Well, her name is Miley Cyrus, but she is listed in the movie as Destiny Silas Cyrus. Oh, oh. The camera pans by and I go, wait a minute. That's little Hannah Montana. Yeah, she's so, a little girl in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. I thought she was the old lady. <laughs> Could have been. She is good with the costumes. Well, that makeup did take five hours to put on, so yeah, it could have been her. For Miley? No. <laughs> Her being the witch, Miley being the witch. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying. I got you. I got you. What would you think of Steve Buscemi? I'm a fan of Steve Buscemi and pretty much anything he does. And he's not in this very long, mm. but um, I thought he did fine. Yeah, he's just being Steve Buscemi. Yeah, absolutely. You know, all of them are, really. Uh, Danny DeVito, uh, I thought, was great as the ringmaster. And he's always fun. And it, it reminds me of Batman Returns because Burton and DeVito, right? Um, Helen Bottom Carter, we know she's going to have a role because I think she is in every one of his films. Mm-hmm. Um, Wasn't he dating her at the time? or uh, Probably. I mean, they're married now. Yeah. so I really enjoy her in a lot of different things. I did, she was very tailored back in this. Sweeney Todd is one of my roles, or one of the movies that I loved her role in the most. Uh, I didn't know she was pregnant at the time during the filming of this movie. Of this one? Yeah. Yeah, well, neither did I. It was good to see Benson back. <laughs> I had to laugh because he's the doctor and uh, he walks in and I go, oh, I said, oh, look, it's fucking Benson. So. You know, and I, I thought I, th- I saw him and I even said to Julie, I said, it's really nice to see him again, to be in a big movie. And then I thought, wait a minute, he was in The Lion King. Yes. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Do you know who uh, was originally set to direct this movie? No. Who? It was originally supposed to be Steven Spielberg. Oh, I can see this being a Spielberg type of film. And if it had the been, fantasy of things, yeah. if it had been Steven Spielberg, he wanted Jack Nicholson for the Edward Bloom role. The older Edward Bloom or the young Edward Bloom? The older. Probably the young. I don't know. Hey, eat me. <laughs> well, and then Ewan would be the still be the young? I don't know because the reason why Ewan was chosen, one of the reasons was because if you look at apparently a younger picture of Albert Finney, he looks just like Ewan McGregor. 
they look very similar and I, and I, and I bought it, but I guess what I was asking was you instilled a choice. If that's what I say, I don't know. Ewan doesn't look like a young Jack Nicholson. Maybe they would have to go with, um, uh, Christian Slater. I always think of Christian Slater as a young Jack Nicholson. That's not bad. Is it time for trivia? I don't know. You got anything else? That was a big heavy sigh. In our continuing pursuit to crown the master of movie trivia, I've prepared a series of questions related to today's movie. Please wait until I finish each question before answering. In the beginning of the movie, as Ed tells his story of trying to catch the fish, what was the name of the fish? Oh, it the was, beast. It was, yes, the beast. God damn it. Goes the professor. What did Ed use to lure the beast? The wedding, wedding ring. ring. The wedding ring. According to Zachy Price... What does the witch make out of people? Bones and furniture. Soap. Soap, goes the professor. What was the last name of the doctor in the movie? Pendergrass. Benson. Oh, Bennett. 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 Because I remember thinking it sounds like Benson. You had to work your way to it. Nice work. What did the mayor give Ed before he left the town of Ashton? Key Key to to the the city. city. Very good. What was the name of the town that Ed finds after stumbling out of the haunted forest? Spectre. Very good. Who steals Edward's shoes, Inspector? Jenny. Jenny. Mm-hmm. Jenny! What is Sandra Templeton's favorite flower? Daffodils. Very good. When young Edward Bloom is in the plane before jumping out, he is reading a book. What was the title of the book? I didn't write that down. Oh, I didn't even look at that. Fuck. It was uh, Weathering Heights. He even reads it again. Okay, that doesn't mean I'm going to know it. Hiding in the, the back room. English to Asian. Oh. Jenny appears as a little girl, a grown woman, and as the witch in the movie. What is her last name? Uh, Soggy Bottom. It is Hill. And it's listed on the deed if you had looked closely. I did write that down. Very nice. How old? Son of a bitch. How old did Jenny say she was when she got married? And how old was her husband? Twenty-one, and her husband. Uh, her husband was 21. nineteen and twenty-nine. God damn it! Oh, you're really close, Professor. I almost want to give you a point for eighteen that. and twenty-eight. Eighteen and twenty-eight. Oh, that's put- right, because there's that ten-year difference that yeah. they talk about. And as she puts it, turns out that is a big difference. And for the final question, when Edward's daughter-in-law asks if she can take his picture, what word does Edward say to look under in order to find his picture in the dictionary? Handsome. Handsome. Handsome goes the professor. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> For the listeners who couldn't tell, right as the professor was answering, our host hit the mute button. I can neither confirm nor deny said action. So according to my information, that now breaks our tie and puts the professor in the lead. Well, he was already in the lead. So I think you need to recalculate what you're doing. At Will Bloom's wedding party in 2000, his father Edward recalls the day Will was born, claiming he caught an enormous catfish using his wedding ring as bait. Will, having heard the stories all his life, believes them all to be lies and falls out with his father. 
Three years later, in 2003, Edward has cancer. So Will and his pregnant French wife, Josephine, return to the town of Ashton, Alabama, to spend time with him. During the plane ride, Will recalls the story of Edward's childhood encounter with the witch in 1932, who shows him his death in her glass eye. Edward, in spite of his illness, continues to tell the story of his life to Will and Josephine. He claims to have once been bedridden for three years due to his rapid growth spurts. He then becomes a locally famous sportsman before being driven by his ambition to leave his hometown. So this movie starts up. Uh, you know what I noticed about this? This movie was produced by Richard Zanuck. Do you know who that is? I've heard his name a million times. No clue. He's one of the producers for Jaws. Oh. And that's, I mean, I've always uh, recognized his name. Uh, and it's funny because this movie starts underwater mm-hmm. with a fish swimming. And I, see the, and I see the Zanuck name. And I'm like, oh, little Jaws. So all it needed was a dun Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. And then we are given the uh, backstory, if you will, of the beast, the fish that could never be caught. What do you think of the fact that it... You know, this whole movie is really about tall tales and big stories, and it really starts with a tall tale. I don't know if that's necessarily what the movie is about, but I think that us starting with the tall tale is a must because it establishes to us right away who Edward is. And I like how, as he's telling the story, he's progressing in age. So we now, as the audience, know that he's been telling this story for his whole life. And we also see Will during this time too. And the first time when he's in bed hearing the story, he's like, yeah, my dad's telling me the story. I fucking love it. And then when they're around the campfire, he's kind of like, I've kind of heard this, blah, blah, blah. And then during the high school, right, he's telling his mom, fucking stop him, right? And then at the wedding, he has to get up and leave. So um, I think that uh, the using the power of the story uh, is used very effectively mm-hmm. in this film. Did Will overreact? No, he didn't overreact at all. No, it, so? no, he did not overreact at all. If he's grown up hearing that story, if he's heard that story 500 times and the 501st time he hears it is at his wedding reception where it's kind of supposed to be about him and his wife, he doesn't want to have to hear that story for the 501st time. I right. thought the father did a good job of, you know, after Will charged out, of turning it around to explain why it was a good toast to the daughter and the son. Sure, it's his justification of why he's telling it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But that doesn't change the fact that Will resents it. Yeah. So, I mean... If that's how he feels, that's how he feels. I just feel like to not talk to your father for three years because he told a story you've heard a 100,000 times. Uh, but it's not just about the it's story. It's not about the story. I'm just saying it put me in a mood, or in a place... Or at this time, because I didn't understand where Will was coming from at this point in the movie, but it put me in a mood of, I already didn't like Will. I, and I can see why. Um, he's mad at his dad because his dad can't recognize that it can't just be about him. Mm-hmm. Well, and the underlying current of, what are you not telling us about that you did? Right. Well, he gets to that. Eventually. But, but, that, but that's part of the festering exactly. uh, resentment that he has. Because, Absolutely. Sure. Because yeah. he wants to know what's real about his dad, warts and all, good, the bad, whatever. And right now he feels like he just can't break that armor. Right. Right. So uh, they don't talk for three years and we fast forward. Yeah. It's, it's a little, it's our first little montage. 
that we see how how they are uh, still communicating through mother. Right. 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 The letter and oh, he's out in the swimming pool. He's outside. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So you know, life goes on, and uh, then Will and his wife. Do I have to say French wife every time? You can say Josephine. It's a French <laughs> no, name. No, but but if you want to say French wife, I'll I'll have a little smile for you each time. <laughs> oh, professor. Um. So Will and his wife are at home, and they get the call. Uh. Dad's cancer is back, so we know that he's already gone through a bout. Uh, but this time he doesn't want to fight it. And so Will goes home, and his wife, uh, being supportive, says, I'm going to go with you. And so they make the trip to Alabama. Uh, I like this bit because as they're, as they're on the plane, it gives us a chance to uh, tell us another story. You know what I mean? We got another story right before they get on the plane, which is the story of his birth and how he... And oh, that's right. He slid across the floor. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it happened just like that. Just like that. You know what I mean? Um, but no, we get the story of him as a little kid in 1932. And him and his friends are, uh, they dare him to go up to the house because there's this haunted house. And uh, this is where we see our little Miley Cyrus. And um, Destiny what, Cyrus. My bad. Uh, what did you guys think of this whole bit with uh, Bottom Carter? Oh, classic. I mean, what kid hasn't done that kind of crap? Well, the thing I I think we were supposed to appreciate at this point is, one, his bravery, and two, the fact that he was very gentlemanly and very nice about it. It wasn't when he just went up and tried to steal the eye. He actually, you know, knocked on the door or whatever, which opened the door, and he talked to her calmly. He wasn't afraid of her at all. Because he has manners. Yeah. Right. He he definitely used his manners and and I could kind of see that this uh, this is where it was going and it pays off brilliantly because he goes back to his friends and um <laughs> they say did you get the eye and he goes yeah and he steps aside and there's the fucking witch and I love how she immediately shows the other two boys who are left because everyone else ran away uh, shows them how they're gonna die but didn't do that to. Uh, Tell Edward until he asked for it. Right, because he was polite. Yeah. You know, and so I thought that was, I, I thought that was a sweet bit. How'd you like the two ways? Like one of them's going to fall off a ladder when he's old. The other one's going to die on a toilet reading the Playboy. That was hilarious. I thought that the, uh, that the way that he treats himself in front of the witch is giving us how he's going to continually show us, the audience, that he is able to win people over. And he has this graciousness, this charm, this uh, gentleness to him that everybody responds to. The idea of what the witch shows him, of him basically saying, I think I'd like to know how I die. And then he's like, well, now I know. Um, Would either of you want to know? Would you either of you look into the witch's eye and see see how you die? I was thinking about that last night, and I don't know. You got to think about it this way, that, yes, it would be scary to know how you would die because you might... be fearful of that day. But on the other hand, what I felt with Edward's character is by knowing how he's going to die, he knows everything he does up until that point, he won't die. So it's almost empowering. You're safe until that point. Well, I don't know. If he shot himself in the head and that wasn't the way he was supposed to die, do you think he goes into surgery and survives it? Well, he he wouldn't shoot himself in the head. Because, but, I'm, but I'm just saying, yeah. I mean, you... you, you 
you think you're invincible. But I'm almost thinking like when he goes in the circus and sticks his head in, you know, the lion's mouth, he knows this lion is not going to kill him. So Oh yeah, no, no it, it, it no, it, it totally uh, it totally drives him. Yeah, and going and seeing the giant. He knows the giant's not going to kill him because that's not how he dies. Might totally maim and disform him, but he yeah. won't be dead. What do you think, Professor? Would you look in the eye? No. I've thought all pretty much my whole life that I'm not going to die one second before I'm supposed to. And whenever it is that I go, that's when I go. Or you could look at it like this. Uh, do you read spoilers? Yes. Then you would want to know. Probably. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm 50-50 on spoilers, so I guess it would depend on the day you ask me. I'm leaning toward no, because I don't think you should know. But... I don't know. And you, I know you, Professor, are definitely a non-spoiler kind of guy. If so. I'm really into end credit scenes, re- reading ahead about end credit scenes, does that mean I want to haunt my funeral? You want to what? Haunt my funeral. Oh, I have no doubt in my mind you're going to be there haunting. But here's the thing. You're probably going to be buck-ass naked, running around everyone who's crying, all four of us, and, you know, trying to haunt the shit out of us. Yeah. You're going to be crying because you're going to find out I left all my shit to Ken. <laughs> well, it's probably going to end up being like an Audrey Hepburn moment from the movie Always. You're going to find yourself sitting in a chair out in a field and Audrey Hepburn's giving you a haircut. Oh my God, I was I went somewhere completely different as you were saying that, but there you go. What, I like what movie that. is that from? Steven Spielberg's movie Always. Oh. It's a sweet watch. Never seen it. It is. Richard Dreyfuss, Holly Hunter, John, John Goodman. Goodman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 The next scene that we get after the, the witch is we get to meet Dr. Bennett, and we hear that things are serious with Dad. And there's an endearing little moment that I appreciated about him, how he says, oh, you're seven months pregnant. <gasps> how did you know? And then afterwards, he, he gently whispers to her, it's a boy. Yeah, I thought that was a sweet moment, too, because she's like, to the day, you know, and yeah, that was really good. Yeah, it, really it, good. it made him that, in my eyes, it made him somebody special to this family. Sure. And to the story. Really. And to the story. Will confronts his dad about dying, and and dad is insistent that this is not how he dies. And then Will's all, because of the witch. Right. Will comes forward, and he and this is where we finally get to hear from him firsthand that he wants to hear the true version of events of things, and 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 he he wants to know what his father is really like or not really like, and he wants to know the reality of things with his father that he has never broken away from all, all of these fabled stories. Right. One interesting thing I thought that I don't know if it really came out here, but it was kind of uh, pushed here was even though Will is so upset with his father, do you notice that he kind of followed a little bit in his father's footsteps with regards to storytelling? In that his father tells these tall, fantastical tales of exaggerated things that happened to him. Will, on the other hand, became a journalist right. who tells the truth in his stories. So again, you got these two characters are all that... Yes, they both are storytellers, but they've kind of gone in these you know these different directions. They they, they are opposing storytellers, if mm-hmm. you will. Once the best I heard um, them classified is Will is the thinker and his father is the dreamer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well yeah. put. Well put. And then we uh, we meet Edward as Ewan, 
and we go through his life we in get a, we get a Ashton. montage yep. of, of his of his sports prowessness when well, he when he's running down for the touchdown did you think of Forrest Gump yes well before that we start off with him as a little boy having his growth spurt in church did you catch when he was singing the church hymn and his voice cracked that that crack was actually Ewan McGregor's voice oh no it was yeah they oh, actually funny. they threw his voice in to show his voice was changing then all his buttons popped off. That's right. And he talks about how he spent three years in bed because of his growth spurts. That's right. Uh, something I thought I'd bring up, and it's something you can kind of watch for as the movie goes on. Do you notice how often the number three comes up? Um, no, I didn't pay attention. It comes up with... Um, they don't talk for three years. They don't talk for three years. He's bedridden for three years. Three years. Uh, there are three towns, Ashton... Auburn and Specter. He spent three years in the circus. Uh, three years in the army. Three years, well, th- up to three years in the army, but he got down to a year from taking those dangerous right, jobs. Right, right, right. So the number three comes up a lot, and I guess I was trying to do a little research on it to see why specifically number three. And three is a powerful number to storytellers, storytellers especially for its, its importance with astrology, with religion with just all kinds of factors uh, that three is worked into this movie specifically. Well, three. It's the magic, magic number. number. There you go. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. De La Soul. So, Very good for listeners, if you go back and watch this movie again, or if you see it soon, watch for how many times the number three pops up. Yeah. It will blow your mind. So after his sports prowessness, then he has Bloom's uh, landscaping. That was a funky little look. That was a total Tim Burton look when he's standing in the middle of the street and you have the lawn mowers moving in synchronicity as they as they are mowing the lawns of all of those houses. It's hard not to think of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It's hard not to think of Beetlejuice. Or, um, or it reminded me of Pleasantville for some reason. Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands. That's where I was going. A little bit. A little bit with the Pleasantville. Yeah. Um, and so... He he has success with the science fair, and then right after that, there's a giant that is terrorizing the local townsfolk. Well, even before the giant, I like the fact that that there's that one older brother guy that was there at the beginning that saw himself die in the toilet. In each scene, he's getting basically second place. Yeah. Yeah, that sets us up for, uh, naturally, that's who... uh, His romantic rival. Yeah. Good old Don Price. And so, yeah, there is a giant in town, and he volunteers to go talk to him. And uh, because I think he's bored with where his life is at. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he offers himself to, up to be eaten. Well, he comments, you know, I think it's a little bit to the giant, and we'll get to that in a sec here. But he mentions that during his growth spurts, the whole story with the goldfish, that the goldfish won't grow bigger unless it's put into a bigger bowl. In other words, even with his growth spurts, he's growing because he's meant for bigger things. He's meant to break out of this little town. In 1944, he sets out into the world with a misunderstood giant, Carl, who was terrorizing the town by eating livestock from the surrounding farms. Edward and Carl find a fork in the road and travel down separate paths. Edward follows a path through a swamp and discovers the secret town of Spectre. 
the cheery locals claiming he was expected. There, he befriends Ashton poet Norther Winslow and the mayor's daughter, Jenny. However, Edward leaves Spectre, unwilling to settle down but promising Jenny he will return. Edward and Carl reunite and visit the Callaway Circus in 1948, where Edward falls in love with a beautiful young woman. Carl and Edward get jobs in the circus, where the ringmaster Amos reveals to Edward one detail about the woman at the end of every month. Three years later, in 1951, Edward discovers that Amos is secretly a werewolf and is attacked by him, but avoids getting him shot with a silver bullet by playing fetch until he turns into a human in the morning. Amos, upon returning to normal, reveals the woman's name to be Sandra Templeton and that she attends Auburn University. So, uh, him and Carl leave. I love the interaction between him and Carl and how he first offers himself up as, uh, I was chosen to be a human sacrifice, so please make it quick. Right. Edward Bloom knows how to talk to people, mm-hmm. right? And he doesn't discriminate or he doesn't, you know, he just talks to you like a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the humanity comes out of him and he learns that this giant's not a monster. He's just a fucking giant. You know what I mean? So they become friends. They leave the town together. Uh, they go to the fork in the road. And this is where Edward finds Spectre. Had you seen Matthew McGorry, the one who played Carl? Have you seen him in things before? Probably. He's been in a few different movies. Uh he has he suffers from the same gigantism that Andre the Giant did and some of the other really super tall people. In fact, he actually held the world record for biggest shoe size, 29 and a half inches, I guess. I can relate. Uh and yeah. And uh one of the things I, I thought was interesting was he was very happy with the costume designers for designing him those luggage shoes because it was the most comfortable pair of shoes he had had. That's awesome. Sadly, because of his gigantism, he died two years after this movie was made. Yeah. So the road that we have Ed going down all too quickly, it stops looking like a road at all. Yeah, it kind of looks like a forest that we'd seen before. Do you get that this might have... I mean, I, I was trying to look for the deeper meanings in the stories that Edward was telling, and maybe that wasn't really the point of the movie, but he talks about how him and Carl went down different paths I was thinking maybe that meant that their lives kind of diverged a bit for a time being and they didn't meet up again until later in life and that maybe going through this haunted forest with all these bugs and spiders and everything represents that Edward might have gone through a hard time until he reached Spectre. Um, Reading too much into it? No, I mean, if that's what you are thinking and if that's what this movie is making you feel, okay, but I think that the uh, forest and the the trees that grab him and the spiders and the creepy crawlies are just part of the fantasticalness that he's telling them. Mm-hmm. He's, he's embellishing these stories. And it was probably, I mean, if you thought about it, I guess one way of thinking about it is uh, the road he took is just a dirt road down. But wouldn't it be more exciting if the trees came to life? You know what I mean? And that, and that's what I kind of feel that Edward does. And has wasps and... Oh, yeah, all that jazz. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The first time I saw it, the way I chalked it up to was once we get to this surreal town of Spectre where everything just seems off because they're just way too nice and nobody's wearing shoes and... The road is paved with grass. I thought 
that that meant that he was, once he lost his shoes, then how are people buried? People are buried without shoes. And so I took it as potentially that he had died. Oh, interesting. I kind of took it the same way, Professor. The first time I saw this movie, I thought by getting to Spectre the first time, and they they mention you're here too early. You were meant to come later. I thought he had somehow stumbled upon heaven. And that now he's in heaven, and you're right, nobody wears shoes in heaven. Obviously, the roads are paved with grass. You can walk. Everybody serves apple pie anytime you want it. You know, everything everything is perfect and happy. And so I thought when they said, you got here too early, meant he's going to have to leave heaven and come back when he dies later. And so, um, you know, they go through this whole bit, and he's there, and he makes friends with Jenny and, and the locals, and the locals just love him. Right, I think that one dude's wife was hitting on him. Felt maybe. a little bit like the that. whole town seemed a little creepy to me. I was, I was going to say culty, but I that's didn't. what Julie referred I, to. I, it I, as. I didn't, didn't want to. I didn't want to say that. Julie commented when he was in the town. She's like, it was the first time she had seen the movie. She's like, what cult did he stumble into? Yeah, and then one other little ten, uh, two second moment of creepiness. You caught that, did you? Did you catch who it was playing that? Was it the kid from they, the movie? Was they, it the actual guy? They brought back the kid from the movie yeah. to play his banjo. You ever see Deliverance? Yes, I have. Oh, okay. I know you have. Yes. Squeal okay. like a pig. Yeah. You know, ultimately, uh, Edward's like, I can't stay. I got to go. He's got bigger things he needs to do. Yeah, he was meant for bigger things in and life. And he promised Carl that he wouldn't ditch him. Which I think is kind of a cool move, right? Mm-hmm. So... We also meet Norther Winslow, Steve Buscemi's character. And I think it's him who kind of convinces Edward to leave, right? In a way. Well, in a way, you know what I mean? Because he, sa- he he sees him there, and he sees that he has never left. Ten years, and he's still trying to write that poem. What'd and you it's think still of like poem? three lines, right? What do you think of his poem? Yeah, that was silly. But he ends up leaving, and then him and Carl reunite, and now we are introduced to the circus. Oh, we do also have that moment. That strange little moment where Ed sees the uh, woman in the water and the, uh, the the river snake working his way towards her. The bathing woman. Yes. Which it also kind of reminded me of Old Brother with the Sirens. I thought originally, you know, because it's kind of a, a thing out of Greek mythology. Someone witnesses, you know, a goddess bathing kind of thing. So I thought that's kind of where they're going. But then they refer to her as she was a fish. Yeah. Did you get the whole significance of this whole thing of why we have a naked woman who's the fish? Um, just the way he sees her, I guess. Mm-mm. I don't know. I didn't put too much thought into it. I kept trying to, like I said, look for the deeper meanings in this of why she comes up multiple times, this naked woman swimming around. It's like the other time is when he's going back to Spectre, uh, what is the significance of him seeing a naked woman? Because Jenny even says she appears to people however they want to see her. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he sees her as some naked woman. So I was just wondering what the significance of that might mean. I, Your guess is as good as mine, buddy. Mm-hmm. And at the circus, uh, they bring out their strong man or their big tough guy, whatever. And Goliath. The, gent- the gentle giant. The Goliath. Right, yeah. And then... Uh, you know, Ewan says, I can beat that. And then Carl comes in and everybody leaves and runs away. But Danny DeVito's like, here's the contract. Uh, will you pretty much basically be my slave? Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, okay. <laughs> and he signs. And um, and then we find out that uh, 
Edward is about to meet the love of his life. Yeah. And this is where this is where the time stops and they're in the the circus and I said to myself, I swear to god if they break out into a fucking song, I'm going to be pissed. So, it didn't. And Nolan, you got lucky because this is not a musical. I thought they did pretty well with the stop motion of everyone kind of freezing in place. I don't know if did you catch the cat in the air? No, I don't think I did. Someone was throwing a cat and so there's this cat just frozen in air and I thought that was just kind of a funny little side bit yeah yeah and then i like how he says uh well if you stop time for that long eventually it's got to catch back up right it, it speeds up right mm-hmm. and so uh sandra disappears this this story opens up uh at the dinner table and they're quietly having dinner the four of them together it's you know, we're back in pre- current times and will and, and and the family they're sitting there at, at the dinner we have a couple of shots where we have Ed staring directly into the camera at us when he is talking, and he and he drops the bomb that she wasn't supposed to marry him. He, she was betrothed to somebody else. That's right. And, uh, oh, she never told you. Well, oh, is this another tall tale? And then that's how we launch ourselves into the, the circus story. Right, right. But I, I, I really liked uh, those few moments that we had where we have Ed um, looking straight at us in into the camera. Oh, and we also got that milkman joke. Oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, the milkman just dropped dead. <laughs> so Edward, determined to find out who this mystery girl is. He is surprised to find out that Amos knows exactly who she is. And that Why he is he would... so trusting about that? Well, and I kind of had a... I thought about that too. What if Amos is just fucking with him, right? Yeah, just yanking his chain. Totally. Yeah, because we kind of got an impression that maybe Amos isn't the best guy in the world after he signed you know, that contract with the giant of, would you agree to servitude? Yeah, that, that's a good point, you know, but uh, Edward believes him, works for nothing, and every month he gets a new detail. And I like, uh, you know, he Edward's has his head in the lion's mouth. He's getting shot out of a cannon. He's uh, scooping up elephant shit, just doing everything. And then, you know, Amos comes trotting by and goes, she likes daffodils. And then he walks off. Yeah, she goes to Auburn. Yeah. <laughs> there he is. He's standing in the middle of that uh, metal cage as the motorcycles roar around him. Yep, yep. She likes music. Music? Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. And he's always very positive. The uh, part with the elephant, I guess that was not meant to happen, the, the elephant pooping. But the uh, cameraman uh, liked it so much. They were laughing their asses so much that it was crapping right when Ewan was kind of doing a scene that they kept that in the film. Oh, I thought it was hilarious. I really appreciated Amos's direct blunt talk that he gives to Ed about before... Uh, before Ed agrees to work for free for him. He says, kid, you're out of your league. You are a big fish in some small pond, but this is the ocean and you're drowning. Go back to Puddleville. Yeah. That was some, that was some real, but right between the eyes talk that I, I, I really dug that he did that. Didn't know that he's willing to do that. He's going to work for free, man. You are one stupid kid. Yeah. Well, he fucking does it, you know? And the fact that he does, like some other people refer to him as a big fish, wouldn't that be, you know, a small pond? There's a little bit of foreshadowing going on there. And then so one day, 
uh, Edward decides, you know, I got to get out of here. I'm going to go talk to Amos and see if I can get some more information. And we see the trailer rustling and bustling. And the trailers are rocking. That's what Julie said. Julie says, better not open that door. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so he goes over there and. I think there's a cameo when he's approaching the trailer, I think. Well, you see the three the, one of clowns. The, I think one of the three. I think one of those three clowns is Tim Burton. Oh, I didn't even notice. I think. Oh, but um, when he gets to the door and opens it, uh, and it wasn't because the camper was rocking. It was because Danny DeVito turned into a fucking werewolf. What the fuck was that about? That- part of the tall. Tale. Again, part of Tartar, again, trying to look for symbolism, I couldn't figure that one out. I didn't know what the purpose of having him be a werewolf meant to this movie. Because it was fantastical. But I guess maybe he needed some way to completely earn Amos's trust and, you know, gratitude in that uh, Soggy Bottom was going to shoot him with a silver bullet if he attacked. Yeah. And did, uh- did Ewan get shot? It looked like it. It looked like he got shot in the shoulder. Yeah, and he seemed to be fine. So I guess that part of the story was left out. It's just a flesh wound. But uh, that earned him the name. Right. Amos was so touched that Edward didn't let him get killed. Uh, he played fetch with him until the wee morning hours. And he ate a couple of rabbits, one that was probably already dead. And he says that would explain the indigestion. Uh, Amos gives him her name. And... Sandra Templeton. And that she goes to Auburn University. Edward travels to Auburn and stalks Sandra for many days, even going so far as to plant thousands of daffodils outside of her sorority house bedroom. She tells him that she is engaged to Edward's childhood peer, Don Price. Don brutally beats up Edward, prompting Sandra to break off their engagement and marry Edward. Not long after, Don dies of a heart attack as the witch had prophesied. Shortly after, Edward is drafted into the army in 1952 and sent to fight in the Korean War. He parachutes into the middle of the North Korean military show, steals important documents, and convinces Siamese twins Ping and Jing to help him go home in exchange for making them celebrities. Upon returning home, Edward becomes a traveling salesman and crosses paths with Winslow. In 1963, he unwittingly helps Winslow rob a failing bank with no money and later inspires the poet to work on Wall Street. Winslow becomes a wealthy broker and repays Edward with $10,000, which Edward uses to obtain his dream house. Uh, So Edward goes to Auburn to find Sandra. What did you guys think of this whole bit? I thought that he is incredibly driven. And the fact that he's just so forthcoming about, we've never met, but I'm in love with you and I want to marry you. Yeah. That's, That's a lot for somebody to take in. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I thought it was a little bit, you know, you kind of knew obviously where the story was going, but it was kind of a little heartbreaking when she said, I'm already engaged. And you kind of that look and that broken face that he gave of turning around the broken spirit and turning around and starting to walk away. But it only was, but it was only for a second. Yeah. Because he turns around and he says, I should have, uh, a normal person would, ex- or he says something to the effect of, you know, my destiny, this wasn't my destiny and I have to move on. Only a fool would continue. And he said, well, 
I'm foolish. So he continues. And we get a montage of him gradually winning her over. Right. Do you know there was actually a deleted scene here? Nope. I did not know that. He was, in, and I'm not making this up, there is a scene of him being arrested for stalking. Huh? But uh, they thought that that would have put a real downer on the movie. Oh, completely. And on his character, it would have made him, Edward, look a little bit creepy. Of course it would have. Uh, and, you know... I always advocate, I, I'm not big on stalkers and things like that, uh, but obviously you knew where this movie was going. You also knew, when we found out it was Don Price, that he was going to die young. So my figure is he's not going to play a big part in this movie anyway. Do you know the significance of the actor who played Don Price? Julie had to point this out to me. That there's significance? What other show he appeared in? What TV show? That's significant? Yes. Well, it's, it it shows that he kind of plays a similar character. Apparently, he is Roy in The Office. Have you ever watched the series The Office? Oh, yeah, the one Pam leaves for yeah. Jim. Pam basically dumps him, her fiancé, for Jim in The Office. So I guess history repeats twice for this character, for this actor. Uh, the fact that, you know, when I first found out that it was Don Price... Did you feel a little bad for him because he's always coming in second to Edward and now it looks like he's going to come in second again? Well, once he started kicking his ass, that then I didn't. Completely changed, but I'm saying before the you know his true character came out, did you think this poor guy just keeps getting kicked down? No, I mean it's I didn't, no. no, it's not his fault. It's not it's not Edward's fault that he was just better. Mm. I mean I don't know. I always feel bad. You know, I understand Edward's better, so I, I don't hold it against Edward. I just said that I felt bad for Don, that he's always losing out to Edward. Nah, well. so, but you're right, the professor. He shows his true colors when he beats, you know, beats up Edward pretty badly. And the fact that Edward doesn't even throw a punch, it makes sense why she pretty much dumps him right on the spot. Yeah. I thought it was a powerful shot when she opens up the curtains and she sees Ed standing amidst all those flowers. Sure. All those daffodils. Yeah. yeah. This bit is definitely a, uh, a sleeping beauty moment. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, Cause what Ewan is trying to convey is that he absolutely loves her and there is no, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It is purely a feeling. You know what I mean? And, and he's so, steadfast. Yeah. And, and it works. Him. And the smartest thing he could have done was not throw a punch. Did she ask him not to fight? Yep. Mm-hmm. I, I missed that part, but Julie informed me that yeah, she had asked him. <laughs> and then Don just does it to himself. And, whoa, whoa, whoa. What did I do to myself? Well, you you got you suddenly you're not engaged anymore. You got fisty. Here, yeah. Here's your ring back. There you go. There you go. And he basically was like, whatever, and walked away. And then so after they fall in love and he's in the hospital recovering, he gets his draft order Mm -hmm. and he has been drafted and he's going to the Korean War. What do you guys think of this whole this whole bit of the story? I want to talk about something that happens just before he is off on combat. We have Josephine upstairs at Ed's bedside and the two of them starts talking and she wants to take his picture and they end up lingering on conversations. And as they talk, it is overheard by Will who decides to come and he peeks and he sees the two of them talking. And 
what happens? He ends up sitting down and just listening. And I thought that that was a compelling point because it's not that it's not that Will is fed up with his father and he doesn't want to hear any more of the stories. That's not that's not where he is at in his journey with his father. Right. He still wants to have, you know, his father the way that he's hoping he can get him that he doesn't have yet. But the fact that he's still willing to sit and to listen, I, I thought was uh, a strong story arc in his development of finding his own relationship back with his father that he had that he had been missing all these years. And, and I'm glad that you brought that up because <laughs> I completely forgot about it. Um, I thought it was a very tender moment. And I, oh, think, yes. and I think the way that uh, the daughter-in-law interacts with them is so very sweet. You know what I so mean? So tender. And, and how, and how thrilling it must've been for Edward. You know, my kid doesn't think that any of this is true and he's tired of my stories and he's my kid, but I love him. But here is this person who loves my son and is my daughter-in-law and is happy to hear these stories, you know, so he gets to tell them again. And I think that will hearing him tell the stories to Josephine, I think he start, I think he sees them in a new light. I think he maybe appreciates it just a little bit more because I think at this point, will's got to know he doesn't got much time left. There's not, there's not many more stories that he will get to hear. Right. And once, once Edward is gone, the stories are gone. So I feel like, well, well, the writers, I feel like did a great job in creating this character, Josephine, because really I, and for me, her whole role in this movie was to act as a bridge between the father and the son, and as well act as a healer between the two of them. And I thought the way they portrayed the scenes between her, Edward and will worked out great in that purpose. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I thought that she was an integral character in in having the two find their way back together again. Not that Ed didn't want that, but Ed was just stubborn in his ways. They're both sure. very stubborn, so yeah. And so back in 1952, uh, Edward gets his draft papers, and he's got to go to the Korean War. Three years. What's that? He's supposed to go for three years, but he decides to take every hazardous mission he can to get it bumped down to one year. Right. And so he jumps out of a plane and ends up uh, during a uh, a show. <laughs> what did you think of that puppet? Oh, my gosh. That was creepy as fuck. Do yes, you, it was. Do you know what happened to that puppet? Yeah, it ended, it ended up with Tim Burton. It's living in his house. Yeah, well, you can keep it, buddy. Yeah. You can keep it. Uh, it, it looks Tim Burton-ish. Yeah. But yeah, that was a creepy-looking puppet. And then right after the show is over with the two soldiers that show up and escort him off the stage. Yeah. Dragged him off the stage. And then he ends up and meets the twins and, you know, says, if you can get me out of here, I'll take you to America. Wasn't it curious that the gal singing the song in the red dress? Wow, that's that's an entirely English singing song for us. Well, I mean, he he can't tell the story in a different language, right? Because then we wouldn't understand what was happening. Okay, but were there subtitles for for the previous? Uh, were there? No. Oh well, yeah. Everything's in English. But does that make this movie a musical? No, dude. It doesn't make it a musical. Is it listed as a musical on IMDb? No. no. But it will be on our website. No. What would you think of those twins? 
I thought they were fine. They were they were really interesting to look at when you saw them together with the one set of legs. Right. Yeah. It's, it's and they're like, just a teeny waist, and then it just yeah. kind of flares out. Yeah. That, yeah. That, this like, oh. And the audience, they, they, they all seem to enjoy the show so much. Well, they were pretty. They looked exactly yeah. the same as and they had yeah. when the ventriloquist was up on the stage. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they help Edward get home. And then uh, he becomes a well traveling salesman. Before he gets home, you know, for anybody who's had someone serve in the army, like Julie, her first husband, uh, had to go off, you know, was off in the army and stuff like that. And and just the idea of dreading that knock on the door from a military person to let you know that your your spouse is missing in action or your spouse may be dead. Uh, that kind of especially hit home with Julie of, oh, the heartbreak she must have felt. When she heard that he was probably dead, yeah. Well, the 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 soldier delivering the letter. Ouch! Yeah, that that was done very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So she thinks that Edward's dead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because the army hasn't heard from him in months. He's presuming he's missing, presumed dead. Right. Yeah. The other movie that that really showcases that really drives this this point home is We Were Soldiers. Mel Gibson. Yeah. When it when uh the uh, the wife does decides to uh, take care of delivering the letters instead of the 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 uh, the postman uh-huh do you remember that oh uh, so 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 tender so hard one of the reasons why I brought that up specifically the letting the wife know was a little bit later on after this you know will is going through the stuff in the garage and finds that letter that he's missing in action and so the, I don't know I kind of felt like that was one of our first you know we we knew that obviously, you know, Edward is embellishing and we don't know how much of his stories are true or false, but it was one of our first pieces of evidence that is that yes, his stories are based off of truth. Yeah. And we do get more prodding with Josephine talking to Will about uh, as Will begins to reveal more about how and why he feels about his father the way that they do. And then you have that little moment uh, when they're uh, eating breakfast together in, in the bedroom and, uh, did I ever tell you about, yes, the maple tree in the Buick? Do you remember right. that moment? Yep. It's, it's like, did I ever tell you, did I ever tell you about, yes, the maple tree in the Buick? It's just like, man, I have been there so many times with my parents because I, I had a, a not dissimilar experience with my family like that. Sure. And then... um. After he comes home, he takes a job as a traveling salesman, and during his travels, he runs into Stu Buscemi's character. What do you think of what he was selling? The handy, whatever it was? I thought that was pretty funny. Apparently, the prop makers were worried that it would look too much like Edward Scissorhands, like his hand. So that's why, I don't know if you noticed, there are no scissors as one of the tools on the hand. Oh, I didn't. I didn't pay attention, but that makes sense. Yeah, they purposely yeah. left that off because they didn't want it related to Edward Scissorhands. Right, right. Uh, what did you guys think of the bit where he runs into Buscemi at the bank? Did you see that coming? No, not at all. Not the robbing the bank. I just assumed uh, Norther left Spectre because of what um, Edward had said. Right, right. Uh, I I thought the uh, the robbery reminded me a lot of again. Oh, brother, where art thou? Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was pretty funny. And I love how they make the statement of, well, even though he's robbing the bank, the rich people had already robbed the bank. Right. And the fact that 
Ed, you know, after they leave the bank and Ed jumps to the car and then he calls to him, hey, he, he encourages to get into the car with him because he doesn't want him to get in trouble. Not, and not only that, but when they're driving away, he looks into the money bag and it's Ed's deposit. He goes, I didn't want you to go out with nothing. <laughs> what a guy this Edward is you know what i mean but then he gives him apparently stock advice on going to wall street all that where norther goes on to become a multimillionaire, and so he is able to buy his house do you have you heard any of the history on that house that they buy the real life history uh no a mass murder no the a how, celebrity lived there after this movie was made it fell into a crevice no basically it just fell into disarray and it just broke down, became kind of a really broken down house. And uh, a reality TV show that came into, I think it was something about, you know, let us save your town kind of thing on one of those home uh, networks came in and fixed up the house. So they saved the house. Well, awesome. After the house is purchased, we are back in present day and Ed is in the bathtub and he is underwater, and he's wearing his pajamas, and we slowly see um, air bubbles, you know, gently escaping. And I'm starting to think that maybe, maybe he he's trying to kill himself or something. I don't know, but but he opens up his eyes, and we see his, we see the wife standing there smiling at him, and she just speaks gently to him. And then the fact that she slips off her shoes and she gets into the tub with him is probably my favorite moment in the movie. It's definitely the most tender moment in the movie. Um, it's because he's a fish and he needs his water. That's what I got from it is throughout the movie, I don't know if you caught it, but he's constantly saying how thirsty he is. And he's thirsty and he wants more water and he wants this. So I got the impression exactly what you were saying, Don, is that he is the big fish. He's going to be a fish. Right. In the present, Will investigates the truth behind his father's tales and travels to Spectre. He meets an older Jenny who explains that in 1968, Edward rescued the town from bankruptcy by buying it in an auction and rebuilt it with the help from his friends with the Callaway Circus. Will suggests that Jenny had an affair with his father, but she reveals that although she loved Edward, he remained faithful to Sandra. Will returns home but learns Edward has had a stroke and stays with him at the hospital. Edward wakes up, but unable to speak much. Explains the entire setting is what he saw in the witch's eye. Will starts to believe him as he becomes afraid, but he calms him by narrating what he's always guessed Edward saw in the eye. Though struggling, Will tells his father of their imagined daring escape from the hospital to a nearby river where everyone from Edward's past is there to see him off. Will carries Edward through the joyful crowd into the river where Edward transforms into a giant catfish and swims away. Through telling this story, Will learns to forgive his father who dies satisfied with his life. So yeah, Will wants to investigate and find out what's going on. So he goes to visit a present day Jenny. What do you guys think of this whole thing? Well, this is the other thing. I think when he's going through the garage and finding all the stuff, he finds the deed to the house, to Jenny's house, which leads him to go visit G. Because he had made mention earlier on 
that he didn't know, like his father was away more than he was home. And he didn't know if it was because he just didn't want to have a family or if he secretly had another family and another love outside. So right there, I felt like we learned a lot of where this anger comes from is there's got to be something out there that's keeping my father away sure. and that he didn't love us as much as whatever he loved out there. So the first thought when he sees this deed is, here's that other family. Right. But he goes to investigate and he finds out Edward certainly did do a lot for that town and for Jenny and nothing ever happened. Jenny mentions that the first time he arrived early and then the second time he arrived late. I thought that that was a rather touching moment that is eventually revealed to us, you know, when after her house is all fixed up and doesn't need any more fixing up and, and, and she says, well, you could just leave your hat right there. It's just like, oh, I know where this is going to go. Right. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. And um, I, I, I like the bit where the giant straightens the house. I thought that was funny. Yeah. You know, just another one of the tall tales. Yeah. You know, just embellishing on this story. Yeah. And so she ends up being the last one in the town to sign over the deed so that this town can be saved. Yeah. And so uh, Will returns home and Edward's had a stroke. And he's in the hospital. I think this scene is my favorite scene. And I think it is because you have this storyteller. And he has claimed all his life that he knows how he's going to die. Because the witch showed him. And at the very end, he tells his son to finish the story. And I don't know. There was just something in that hit me. And so uh, while he's telling the story... And, you know, he's carrying him to the water and it's like a funeral. All of his friends are there to say goodbye and he's going. And, and I love that Sandra is in the water waiting for him. You know what I mean? It, it's such a beautiful moment. And yeah, this one just kind of blew me away. Did you catch that Jenny was there twice? Yeah. She was there as the the older Jenny and the witch. Yeah. It was, uh. It was everybody from his life. But what I think what strikes the chord with me is he asks his son to finish the story Mm. after all of this time. And there's something important that happens just before this. It's when Dr. Bennett tells Will what really happened when he was born. I love this part. And the fact that it was completely routine and and it was a normal delivery and there was nothing unique or special about that delivery over any other delivery. And so Dr. Bennett, you know, he lets him know that, you know, maybe he just kind of sort of likes to, you know, spice things up a little bit like that. And Will, he's like, but I like that. I like that story that that's what really happened. And so then for, for him to finally know the God's honest truth potentially about, you know, what he, what he has been never told gives him perspective a little bit that, okay, so he embellishes all these stories a little bit. And with that, it's just who he is. Yeah. Yeah. I also took it. I liked how Bennett said right before that, you know, he tells him the truth about what happened at his birth and Bennett says, and I kind of like his, his version of the story. It's more interesting. And you're right. Then he says, well, I, you know, Will says, well, I like the true story better. But I think going throughout this whole movie, you were, Will is really finding out that he thought all of his dad's stories were made up and all lies. And now we're finding that there's a lot of truth in all of his stories if you're willing to look deeper into them. And, and that is revealed after the passing. Mm-hmm. But I, I would like to talk a little bit more 
about, you know, his send off, if you will, how everybody is smiling and everybody that's important to him is being included in the story. And what better storyteller outside of maybe Sandra, right, would be Will, because Will has heard all the stories, and he knows who all the players are that must be included in the story, that lets Ed see his story. And he gets to have his story send off in a uh, poetically uh, happy way, if you will, of that he has had a good and full life. Right. One of the things I think that hit me at this point, especially the second go around of watching it, was I kept looking for the significance of even just the terminology big fish, uh, which usually is someone who wants to be, you know, the highlight of everybody's story. He wants to be the one that, you know, one ups everybody with the, the big stories and the, the just the, the big tall tales and the focus of everything. That's one of the things that Will's upset in the beginning during his wedding is that his father upstaged him at his own wedding. Well, in the beginning of the movie, when Edward is telling the story of the beast, he mentions that the beast was a was the spirit of someone who had died, who had gone on to become this immortal big fish. And I was thinking about, especially at the end of this movie, that maybe somebody told that story to Ed long ago of this big fish, because he mentioned someone told him that it was a spirit of somebody, and that maybe that's what inspired him to tell tall tales just like that one. And so him becoming, at the end, the immortal big fish, his spirit going into the fish was like the perfect ending for him. That's exactly how he wanted to go because just like the stories of him, you know, he's going on to become immortal. Well, yeah. he's going on to live through the stories that are told mm-hmm. about him. And that was, uh, that was apparent in after the conclusion of the funeral when we see uh, the different groups we don't hear what they're talking about, but everybody is talking, you know, with their hands and they're smiling and they're laughing and it, it's all about Ed. It's, it has to be right because they're all together again. And then we get to see, you know, these characters that there is a kernel of truth to all these stories by having these characters actually show up. And, you know, like for example, the Siamese twins, it's just, Oh, I, uh, you know, it, it had to be just a figure of speech that these two girls were, were together all the time, like they were joined at the hip right? type of thing. Right. And so I, I thought that it was a very uh, sweet way to uh, show that he is being remembered. At the funeral, Will and Josephine are surprised when all the people from Edward's stories come to the service. Though each one is slightly less fantastical than described, he asks for their accounts of Edward's stories where they confirm the credibility but also fantasize his acts in return. Years later, Will passes on Edward's stories to his own son, helping him become immortal. Roll credits. 
And so I think this this funeral bit actually kind of goes along with I, my favorite scene um, because I think it's from here that, uh, like we were saying earlier, it all clicks. You know, this is this is that moment in the M Night Shyamalan movie that we find out that Bruce Willis is dead. Um, Whoa! Come on, man. <laughs> Though they were fantastical, they were true. They were just embellished. Yeah. There's a grain of truth in every single one of his stories. Yeah. And I think and when he sees that and he realizes it, he can be at peace. You know what I mean? And he, he can say goodbye to his father and, you know, pass his stories down to his children. And, you know, that's that's what it's about. And while we didn't actually, you know, hear it happening, but I guess, I don't know if it's better explained in the book or in the script, but the hand gestures and the people like Danny DeVito's character telling the stories, they're now telling Edward's stories from their viewpoint where Edward is the big tall tale. They're over-exaggerating his deeds instead of to the opposite of what Edward had always done. Oh, sure. So sure. I, I just love that idea of now, you know, the fact of Will getting to hear the stories from a different perspective. Yeah. So have either one of you had the uh, bittersweet opportunity to be with somebody when they pass no not yet well as you guys know uh actually i think when this podcast release it will be the two-year anniversary of my mother passing and i was in the hospital room with her when she passed and it was difficult because the first thing you think of is i'm not going to get to hear this person's voice anymore i'm not going to get to hear their stories um, you know, I'm not going to get to hear her telling my dad to shut up all the time, which was always a funny thing that she did. Not a bad thing. Because uh, whenever he got talking politics, my mother had to quiet him down real quick. Oh, I, I can imagine. Uh, but just, you, you know, you miss, even you think about some of the bad times you had, they weren't so bad. They were just the way things had to be, the way things needed to be for you to have this loving relationship with someone. And there's never enough time with these people. My mother, you know, I miss her every day, but she lives on in the fact that we were always talking about her and we're always telling stories. And we still are getting comments from people who knew her as a teacher. She was a math teacher for many, many years uh, many generations because she had, you know, parents and children and their grand, you know, grandchildren. She had them all in her school that she taught long enough. And we get emails and comments from them about how she really turned people around on mathematics. And, and one of the big things she always said, if she only uh, ever turned around one person to make them believe they could succeed with math, that would have made her whole life, you know, worth it. And the fact of that we've had hundreds of people tell us that that's exactly what she did uh, has always been very special to us. Oh, absolutely. What about you? Yeah, for my mom when she passed. And, yeah, it 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 just is what it is. It's, it's a part of life, and it's something that pretty much everybody goes through. And, you know, you just, you just got to do it, yeah. and, and it's rough. But I, I mentioned a little bit before about, my parents, my, my mother, she, oh my gosh, she could not get enough in telling jokes to people and the cornier, the better. And I, you know, at first it's funny. And then eventually, you know, through my teenage years, listening to 
the same jokes over and over. And my mom and my dad, they would stop people just that they didn't know. They're just walking by them and they just stop them and tell them, oh, would you stop telling? Oh. And it, I, I, more times than I can count that they would sit here and they would just tell jokes to anybody that was within eyeshot. You know, you're in the middle of a restaurant, you turn around and they start talking to the person behind you. She said, would you please stop? <laughs> and eventually what was dumbfounding to me was we would be, I don't know, in a department store or something like that. And they would see somebody that, you know, that they knew. And that person would come up to the, oh, oh, I've got a joke for you. It's just like, what the fuck? And I saw that time and time again where all these people, they would, they would, you know, they'd break, you know, they would break what they were doing and they had to come and tell my mom or my dad, you know, their joke because they, it's just like, wow, you know what? Okay, that's that's just who my mom and my dad are. And eventually, you know what? In in my last several years with them, I just came to accept it that you know what? It's just, it's just who they are. And you know, take it or leave it. I might as well just embrace it. Yeah. And so by the end of the movie, I, I think that's what Will finally did in telling the tall tale to his dad that he was finally going to tell one of his dad's stories. But it was from Will. So back to the end of this movie, uh, specifically the scene where Will is carrying his father into the water and setting his father down and his father becoming the fish and swimming away. Um, You know what this movie really needed? Oh, please do tell. This movie was missing Gollum down the river, ready to snatch and eat the fish raw and wriggly. What? Now it's time for John's moment. This is the point in our podcast where I take whatever movie we are currently reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. In Big Fish, the main character, Edward Bloom, is our Frodo. He is the heroic figure who goes on various adventures throughout his life. He is a larger-than-life character who tells tall tales about his adventures, much like Frodo's journey is filled with fantastical elements. In Lord of the Rings, Sam is Frodo's loyal friend and companion throughout his journey. He is a steadfast and reliable character who's there to support Frodo during his difficult situations. In Big Fish, the character of Carl the Giant is also loyal and supportive friend, and close ally to Edward. He seems to show up when Edward needs him and offers him encouragement. Therefore, I chose Carl as our Sam. The witch in Big Fish, in my opinion, serves as a guide to Edward. By showing Edward how he will die, she sets him off on his journey. That makes her our Gandalf, and like Gandalf, she later appears to our hero in different forms. Aragorn is represented by Amos Calloway. While he may just appear like a lycanthrope circus owner, he also serves as Ed's protector at a stage in his life by trying to offer him advice to keep him safe from heartbreak, as well as instructing him in ways that will help Edward get further on his journey. That makes our fellowship Edward, Carl, the Witch, and Amos. Josephine, Will's wife, 
is a compassionate character who helps bridge the divide between father and son. In many ways, I felt she represented Arwen in that not only was she a warrior to help uh, solve situations, but she was also a caring healer when Frodo got stabbed. Northern Winslow is my pick for Theoden. When we first meet Northerner, he's basically half asleep in the town of Spectre. He is a renowned poet who can't write poetry. Northern admits later, when he meets back up with Edward, away from Spectre, that Edward helped wake him up. Later, when he becomes rich, he thanks Edward for his advice and shares his wealth of his kingdom, helping Edward not only buy his home, but also save the town of Spectre. Gollum, in my opinion, for most of this movie, is Edward's son, Will. While he seems to have understandable issues with his father's stories, for most of the movie, he comes off to me as a bit selfish. He wants the precious truth, even at the cost of the relationship with his father. It's not until the end that he discovers the true value of his father's stories and is released from his emotional bonds. Since there really is no big bads in this movie, beyond the non-physical representations, I didn't find any allegories for Sauron or Sauron in the movie Big Fish. So what is the precious? What is the one ring? In Big Fish, the ring, to me, is represented by the witch's eye, or more directly, what the eye shows. By showing folks the moment of their death, it has a corrupting influence on those who witness it. In the case of Ed's friends, they fear it. But in the case of Edward, he's emboldened by it, knowing he is more powerful with the knowledge of knowing what won't kill him versus what will. As seen when he says, this is not how I die. It's at the end of the movie when Edward's son Will finishes his story that Edward is able to let go and complete his journey. And there you have it, my comparison of Big Fish to Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. What say you, sir? Did you have a representation for Sandra? Uh, no, I did not have for Sandra. I did not have representation for Ed's wife. or I did, And I didn't have representation for Dr. Bennett. Those were the three I really struggled on. F. No. no i'm sorry professor uh f (laughs) minus you know how dare you you sir somebody an f minus why not there's no such thing as an f minus there's no such thing as okay fine give him a g plus okay i like the regular players that you have uh i thought that the will being Gollum. i thought that was a, a clever little turn though not as diabolical as Gollum, but he has the resentment and the anger that Gollum would have, right? Whether it's misplaced or, or whatever the reason is, I, I saw the parallel there, buddy. And um, yeah, I'm going to give you a B minus. Wow. And I agree. I, the, I felt like his precious was the precious truth that he kept trying to cling to. Well, I... I, I am going to say that there is no bad, big bads in this. No. And in, in all honesty, probably no precious either. But if you had to assign one, I think that's the most logical uh, place to go with it. Because it is. He is letting go of all of that in order to appreciate the final moments with his dad. 
So, what was Amos again? Aragorn. Amos was Aragorn yeah. because he he kind of served. You know, we brought up the point earlier on that Amos at first came off like a shifty guy, and we didn't know whether to trust him. But you brought up the point of he gave the speech about really he was protecting him from heartbreak. And that's one of the reasons why he wouldn't give him the information right away because he knew it might destroy him uh, because he was a small fish in a big pond or whatever. So that's why I thought, you know, Amos as the protector of our Frodo made him an Aragorn. Okay. I gave him a B minus. What do you got? Uh, I I thought that the that the ring part wasn't necessarily strong either, but I did appreciate having uh, Jenny being Gandalf. That there are different aspects of Jenny that make her Gandalf. Yeah, that was a good one too. And uh, I, I will agree with the Aragorn. And so uh, let's go B minus as well. I just figured he uh, compared Danny DeVito to Viggo Mortensen because they look so similarly. Very very spot on. And that was John's moment. All right, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to rate this flick. John, do you want to rate this flick? I'm ready to reel in this big fish. (laughs) That's like one of the highlights of my week. I always wait to see what he's going to come in with that. Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. Anytime somebody says, hey, you want to watch Big Fish? Fuck yeah, I do. It's a movie that is just, you know, it, it is a great movie you're willing, you're willing to watch anytime. A one fuck movie is a movie where you've seen it and who knows why you're seeing it, but you know you're never going to watch it again. It's just not worth it. It's, it's you know, it, you're one and done. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is where you go just... Oh, for shit's sake. What the f- What the hell was that? You know what? I want two hours and five minutes of my life back. I want to kick you in the balls for making me watch that. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. Um, all right. Who wants to go first? Who picked this out of the helmet? I did. Oh, well, guess what, motherfucker? You go first. Oh, I can't? Well, thank you. Big Fish is a satisfying watch for me. It was... Uh, a long time ago that I saw this movie and I probably remember probably about half of it. And in general, I thought it was a good movie then. And I found this movie to be a very satisfying watch this time around as well. I think in general, I am a fan of Tim Burton. His storytelling uh, works for me and the, uh, the musical composition as well, you know, continues to uh, enhance that story arc as well. And having the writing be what it was, I, I, I thought that it, it, it told a good story. I really appreciated uh, Ewan McGregor, Albert Finney, uh, Jessica Lang. I really enjoyed the heart that she brought to that. And I thought that it was a very pleasant uh, story that we got with Amos in, in Danny DeVito uh, portraying that role. And, hey, Steve Buscemi. I can always go for Steve Buscemi. So uh, it, it, it's a good movie to watch. And watching the relationship between father and son as they try to be true to themselves, but on the other hand, you know, try to, to build a bridge to each other. And it's, it's just very, very uh, short on time. And is it going to work or not? I, I really like the moment when uh, Ed says, I've been nothing 
but myself since the day I was born. And if you can't see that, it's your failing, not mine. And what it comes down to in that line, he is telling Will, this is who I am. And if, if, I, if I'm not what you want me to be, that's your problem, not mine. And clearly, his wife is at peace with who he is, and she is happily in love with him. And Will just has to get over himself and just accept his dad where his dad is at, which is what he finally does by the end of the movie. The movie has a very satisfying ending, and I I think that it is uh, an enjoyable watch. 4.25 fucks. 4.25 fucks from the professor. All right there, tough guy, you or me. Would you like me to go next? That's not what I asked you. Who would you like to go next? I will go next. For fuck's sake. I knew knew he was going to do that. But before I do, I think you are on a three-week run so far. No, I think I only got last week right, bud. No, I I thought you had a couple, a few in a row. No, just one. I've got a few wrong, but thanks for bringing that up. I appreciate it. Well, okay. Well, let's see if you can keep, keep the momentum going. What do you think my rating will be? Your rating is going to be four fucks. Is that... Your final answer. It's my final answer. In a realm where stories intertwine, Big Fish weaves a tale both profound and fine. With colors vibrant and dreams untamed, a cinematic feast where the truth is framed. Edward Bloom, the yard spinner supreme, his life a tapestry, or so it would seem. From towering giants to a witch with might, each character spun both dark and light. Father and son, a bond to be weaved. Through worlds imagined, their connection retrieved. With love and forgiveness, they venture anew, a journey of understanding both old and new. In that moment of truth, the heart reveals the power of stories, how pain conceals. The ending, a swell of joy and strife, a testament to the tapestry of this thing called life. Big Fish is a triumph. A visual delight, Tim Burton's vision, a true cinematic height. With stellar performance and a cast that excels, it weaves a spell that lingers, a story that compels. For its magical moments and its heartfelt flux, I award Big Fish a total of four fucks. Yeah, boy! And as we leave grass so green and skies so blue... All I have left to say is, Big Fish is really great. What? What was that? Yeah, what was that? That's how Norther ends his poem. Oh. (laughs) I remember that now. Uh, Yeah. Those last two lines are from his poem. Yeah, that's awesome. Good job. All right, four fucks from the comic book guy, four and a quarter fucks from the professor. Big Fish is very much a romantic movie uh, with an old school love story. Um, you know, the, the story about the father and the son and their relationship and how it comes to terms at the end. And it's just kind of like a big love letter to all fathers and sons that I think, I think this movie was beautifully cast. I think it was beautifully shot. I think it was beautifully scored. I think this might be one of my favorites from Tim Burton now. Uh, I'm on board with this movie, so I'm going to give Big Fish four fucks. 
with four and a quarter fucks from the professor, four fucks from the comic book guy, and four fucks from yours truly. That gives Big Fish an average of 4.1 fucks, which now puts it in the 10th spot, tied with Spider-Man, No Way Home, Clerks 3, and Violent Night. It is slightly better than Dodgeball, Edge of Tomorrow, Clerks 2, and slightly worse than Thor, Love and Thunder, Top Gun Maverick, and The Breakfast Club. Okay. Interesting, right? Yeah. All right, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check out the website. And speaking of which, John, where can they find us? They can always find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where I go ahead and post teaser images that will tease you for whatever our next movie is going to be, as well as all of our show notes, movie blogs, and anything else I can figure out how to squeeze into our website. You can also find us at all of social media and any place that hosts podcasts. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to thank Nolan for suggesting this movie. We had a good time watching it and even a better time talking about it. Thanks, Nolan. (laughs) Yeah, that was great. And if anybody else wants to let us know of a movie they would like us to submit, like Brandon just recently did on Twitter, please go ahead and just either use our website to submit a movie or any of social media. Just send us your ideas. There you go. For three guys in a flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening. still down there yeah oh. oh for fuck's sakes they're removing shoes well there's a lot of fucking shoes at the now end they're of the removing hallway socks i don't know why, why is logan taking his shirt off logan because he's hot is it time for trivia i don't know you got anything else that was a big heavy sigh is it time for trivia <laughs> that, that should be the opening <laughs> that should be the lead-in why yes don it is time for trivia and it sounds much better without the cup I don't know, Professor. Uh, the original one's the best, right? Yeah, that absolutely. Because that was the most heartfelt. Yes. <laughs> the cheesy locals claiming he was... Cheery. The, what did I say? Cheesy. <laughs> it was both work. Ping and Jing to... Their name was really Ping and Jing? Yep. <laughs> it <just laughs> seems all wrong all around. <laughs> Is it time for precious moments? Let me look. I'm trying to think how we can... Uh, I whoa 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 whoa. yeah you said you have a lead in and and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Big Fish. So in Big Fish, the you you said that wrong. The greatest greatest movie movie ever ever made, made Big Big Fish. Fish. (laughs) Wanted to say Lord of the Rings, and now you can just Uh, cut out Big Fish and put it. Oh, don't get mad. No, I'm joking. I know. So I think it just wasn't tight. It's always better when it's tight. Hell yeah, buddy. My point is, I think your ears are good to go. Because I remember you were disappointed. Remember? You were like, oh, fuck. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure that was. 100%. You son of a bitch. All right. Fuck off. Good night. Because man.
His final 